Let's pray before we look at uh, God's Word this morning, as we always want to talk to the author before we look at the book. Father, we are grateful that we can come together this morning and, and uh, to praise you and, and hear your word read and, and hear the, the promise and hear the wonderful things you have done for us and through us. Father, we do ask for your gifts as uh, individuals as well as as a body. We ask for your wisdom that comes from your word. We ask for your gift of love that comes from your heart. We ask for the gift of helps, that we, that we be your hands, that we ask for the gift of patience with people around us, the ability to, to bear slights or insults and injuries without bitterness and revenge or resentment. We ask for the ability to forgive as you forgave us. Father, we ask that you help us to live in a way today that others know that uh, we began today with you and that we are walking with you so that others may see you in us. We also want to remember those in our congregation who are in special trouble or distress in their mind or in their heart or in their, their body. We ask you bless the homes of those who have uh, recently experienced death uh, among their, their loved ones and they are left uh, perplexed maybe and confused and sad, and we ask for your ministry to them. We ask you to bless the homes of those where friends and family members have to sit by others who are, who are ill, and they have to spend the night with them by their bedside. And we ask that you bless those who are ill and who are in pain, uh, who seem to have experienced the pain the worst of all at night. And so, Father, we ask your blessing on their home. And we ask that you bless the homes in which bad news has come, Maybe physical, maybe shame, maybe sorrow. That's something that, that's causing sadness because of the people they love. And we ask that you bless those who are sitting alone with disappointment or a dream that has ended. And we ask that you bless the homes of those who are experiencing temptation and maybe those who have lost the battle. And we ask that you bless those who are separated for whatever reason from those they love whether by distance or by, by uh, disagreements or fights and maybe who are anxious and um, just feeling alone. Father, we know that uh, where there is trouble of any kind that you were there and you were there to heal us and you were there to comfort us. And so, Father, we're asking that you minister to the people in our congregation but also the people we know who are suffering from different things and different ailments and ask that you bless their home. We thank you for your goodness. And uh, as, as Paul said, we do these things because of the grace that you have given us. And not just the unmerited favor, but the grace that, that empowers us through the Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. We are finishing up this month our, our series on hope over the summer. And uh, we're going to go a little bit uh, beyond uh, what we've been dealing with. We've been dealing mainly with, with personal hope, personal, how to deal with hope when, it's, when we're hopeless and how to practice hope in our personal lives. Well, this last month, as we kind of bring it to the end, I want to expand that and, and get a bigger picture of not only hope for us as individuals, but hope for the world, uh, hope for what uh, God is doing among us. Uh, most of you know this last, um, we'll go back here. 
There we go. This, uh, this last spring, we were in England visiting my daughter, uh, and we spent Easter weekend with my son-in-law's parents. And uh, it's, it's always a good time to go there. And the, my son-in-law and his dad, they're both huge sports fans, and they're both huge cricket fans. And so every time I go, they have to explain to me the rules of cricket again. And as soon as I get back on this soil, I forget them. And when I go back, I'll say, explain to me again. Now, how does this work? I do not understand cricket at all. And uh, the fall before that, uh, that was the the time of the World Cup, Cricket World Cup. And uh, it it was like the Soccer World Cup, but it's cricket. And it involves evidently a number of countries that I didn't even know, didn't know were involved. And uh, when I got there, <clears throat> they had explained to me the rules. They, were, they had told me, talked to me about it, and they were telling me that in the course of the tournament that Ireland had defeated England in cricket in one of the games, one of the matches. Sorry, it's not a game. It's a match. And, and, and it's like, yeah? And they were just totally dejected of that. They were just, you know, just... It just really ate them up that Ireland had beat them at their own game. This is the game that the British, the English had invented, and Ireland, the Irish, had beat them. And this kind of news goes out, and if you're talking that you're going to spread this news to an Irishman, well, you're going to expect a lot of joy and a lot of, lot of celebration. They're going to go down to the pub with their mates and celebrate, you know, because Irish, the Ireland beat the English. You share that news with an Englishman, especially if you're kind of gloating, they're going to take offense to it. They were very offended that the Irish beat them. That was an offense to them, defense to their Englishness, I guess, their Britishness, that this happened, how terrible that happened. You share that news with me, and I'm thinking, how silly is that? (laughs) That's just nonsense. Who would go to a game that lasts three days and they break for tea? That just doesn't make any sense at all to me. And... And they, they play this game, and you can tell me they're all upset about England losing, or they're all celebration because Ireland won, and I'm just going, what a bunch of nonsense. It just doesn't make sense to me. That's kind of the reaction that the good news meets in the first century when Paul preached it. It's how people in our Western culture receive the gospel or the good news. It's either an offense, it's either silly, or it's really good news. One of those three things. And Paul even says that in the first chapter of Corinthians. He says some receive it and take it as, as folly, as silliness, as nonsense. Others are, take offense to it. But he said this is the power of the gospel that has saved you and has brought you to God. Now, <clears throat> it's, uh, when we talk about this good news here, hope beyond help, the good news is either nonsense, offensive, or hope. To kind of understand kind of what, what um, Paul is getting at, and so we understand where this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 fits, and really the whole New Testament. And I've gone over this before, but I really believe that we need to know a little bit of the historical context because it makes sense of what's going on here in 1 Corinthians and really the whole New Testament. And there's some people that we need to know about, okay? Julius Caesar was never really officially the emperor of Rome. He was never officially the, the, the emperor because he was never really known, named that, although he acted like it. And he wanted to be the sole ruler, but we also know that he was assassinated in March of 44 B.C. 
by Brutus and Cassius, if you've ever seen the, you know, the Shakespeare play, you know, et tu Brute, all that kind of stuff. He was assassinated. And so that created this kind of, just like, just like today, when something like this happens, it throws the whole society into chaos and turmoil and then ultimately civil war. And so it was kind of Julius, uh, Brutus and Cassius over here. You had Anthony over here, a friend of Caesar, and you had uh, Octavian, his adopted son, over here. And they finally defeated Brutus and Cassius. And guess what? Anthony and uh, Octavian then began fighting each other. And Octavian won this incredible, significant naval battle by Greece, over by the shores of Greece on September 2nd, 31 B.C. And he became the emperor. Anthony went back to Cleopatra, went back to Egypt, and they both committed suicide. And the news went out that Octavian was the emperor. Now Herod is a warlord over the Jewish homeland. And he was really good friends with Anthony. He was in favor of Anthony. So now this new thing had happened, and Herod was both crude and mean, but he was also pretty clever. And so he meets with Octavian, and he says, Look, don't think about whose friend I was. Yes, I was Anthony's friend, but think about what kind of friend I was, because I was really loyal. And I will be really loyal to you. And so he stayed. And so Jesus was born under that, that atmosphere. Is, uh, uh, Octavian, who took the name Augustus, was emperor. Herod was the ruler over the Jewish homeland. And so Octavian, when he, became, when he won that battle, he appointed a group of people called apostles. And their apostles were to go out and herald in all land, all over the Roman Empire, including Rome itself, and say, good news has come. There is a new emperor, and things have changed. Everything is going to be changed. There will be peace, and there will be justice, and there will be prosperity. And this is good news. But it took Octavian two years before the, after the defeat of Anthony in the sea to finally return to Rome. But his heralds, his apostles, had already gone out and announced the news. And they get to Rome and they say, this is good news. The emperor has taken the throne. There will be peace, finally. Peace is at hand. Justice is at hand. Prosperity is at hand. And if you were in favor of Caesar's assassination, well, you might ought to think about leaving town. Because when he gets here, he's going to demand allegiance and loyalty completely and your taxes but he will demand all that. Now, what's my point in all this? I really think it's important that we understand that Jesus of Nazareth was a real man who lived in a real time and had a place in a real time and space history. And it affects exactly kind of what this message is all about, that he was a real person, and he also had some people around him and he appointed them in Mark chapter 3. He, literally, it says he commissioned them, just like Octavian commissioned his apostles. Jesus commissioned his apostles. And they are to go into all the land and say, Good news, there is a new king. There is a new emperor, and peace is at hand. He is repeating the message. He's using the same language that Caesar, uh, Augustus used, that Jesus of Nazareth was a real-time and he was born in turbulent time of history of lots of, of lots of chaos. But he said, this is the good news 
this is hope. And it's not just personal hope. It's a broader hope, a hope of the world. It's not hope that's just that we will escape this world. It is a hope that this world is radically changing. This world is totally different. And so the Christian claim is this, that the good news created a new situation and calls for new decisions and a new way of being human. It's kind of like Herod. When Octavian got the throne, he knew the situation had changed. And so it called for new decisions. And it called a new way of doing things. That no longer Anthony or no longer Caesar, it was now Octavian. And he had to, to change the way he's thinking. That's the same way with this good news of the gospel. That God has, has created a new situation that calls for new decisions and a new way of being human a new way of doing things. It is a new way of doing things. Christians use the same language as apostles, someone who is commissioned, and their responsibility is to the king. But what is it that actually happened that did this? Well, Paul is saying that there is one God, one true God, and he is active and he is alive. One God, one true God, and he is active and he is alive. And something happened with this God. That this man Jesus came and said that he was the one who was representing this God who was active and alive. And he was crucified, but God raised him from the dead and he was seen. This is something really different. And what Paul is saying is that all this system that you have in, in Jerusalem and all those gods that are in these, in these different cities that you have to kind of please so that your life goes well and all these things are going on, he said, let me tell you, it's a sham. It's all a sham. That this one true God, the only God who's worthy of the name God, is active, he is alive, and something new has happened. He has raised Jesus from the dead and something new has happened and it calls for a new situation, new decisions, and a new way of being human. This is a non-negotiable. He's saying there is nothing, this is not something that you can, eh, let, me, let me think about that. Does it suit me or not? This is news. It happened. I mean, can you imagine Octavian's apostles going to the town and saying, Octavia is now emperor, and you ought to try it and see how you like it, see how it goes. Think about it for a little bit. That's not what the news is all about. News is something that happens, and things are different. When Germany surrendered in World War II, the world was a different place, became different. Something happened. When the atom was split, something happened, and the whole world changed, and decisions had to be made, and new decisions were made, and affected everything. Well, that's what news is. It's not something, and even, even in our churches, we kind of miss that a little bit. We say, well, what Jesus came, the gospel is good advice. You might take it, see if it suits you, see if you think it's good advice and you can work in it, you know, whatever. It, it's, it's not that. Or some people say, well, it's a new spirituality that's focused on Jesus. And I have my spiritual, my spiritual life and I can focus in on Jesus and have this, this uh, contact with God through Jesus. Or people will say, well, it, Jesus came, the good news is a new morality, a new morality of how we treat one another and all that. Or some will just say, well, the gospel is me going to heaven when I die. 
And that's the gospel. Now, I want to be really clear here. All those things are true. All those things are good. But it misses the main point when you isolate one out of the other. You collect them all. And they're all true, but it sort of misses the point. The accent's on the wrong syllable. When Katie was little, uh, my mother-in-law used to send us all these tapes, and I had a bunch of, uh, of Three Stooges tapes, okay? And we thought they were hilarious. I'd watch them with Katie. Sue hated them, but we liked them. And there's this one scene where, where Larry is playing the violin, and he's training Curly to fight a box, you know, to box or something. And he falls, he breaks his violin, and Larry goes, I lost my balance. And we, and we thought that was hilarious. And Katie thought that was hilarious. He says, I lost my balance. Of course, you got to remember, she was only 30 years old at the time, but no, just kidding. She was little. She was little, but she thought that was hilarious. So now in our family, whenever, some, whenever something trips or we fall or something, we always say, oh, I lost my balance. Well, that's kind of if we just focus on one of these things as saying this is the gospel, we're losing our balance. It's, it's, it's emphasis on the wrong syllable. It's something else. It's something else. It's not something that Paul's offering the Corinthians and saying, well, gee, that's interesting. Hmm. I think I, uh, I think I might consider that. No, this is news that happened. And the life changes. The world has changed. And it requires new thinking. And that's what he's getting at. Paul is not offering them a flashlight so that they can see better in the dark. He's telling them, the sun has risen. Pull back the curtains. Look. Now you can see everything. It's not just a flashlight that we hold in our hand so that we can see better in the dark. In the, the Westminster um, a Cathedral in, in England, there's a plaque memorializing C.S. Lewis, and they chose this quote from C.S. Lewis to put on this plaque. He said, I believe Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He's telling, he's telling them that by the sun rising, you see everything else. And all the things that he's talked about, and we'll look at this in a little bit more detail, but all the things he's talked about in Corinthians has to do with that, of what he sees of seeing everything in, in the present. So now, with this, we have a new kind of king, Jesus of Nazareth. A new kind of king. This is not, the, the gospel story is not about some great character that we, that we read in a storybook. It's not some hero that we look up to. It's that something happened. And Paul is saying, you can't take Jesus' teaching and, and just kind of categorize it with Socrates or Plato or anybody else and just kind of include it in these lessons and stuff. Not that what they say is bad or anything, but this is different. That this king came to heal he came to transform people. He came to rescue them. He came to renew the world. He came to defeat evil. And he refused to fit into any certain pattern of what we think a king should be. It's not because Jesus was stubborn or because I just want to be different. He seemed to know what God's purposes was all about. Now, from our point of view, of course he knew. But at the time, he knew what God's purposes was all about, and that was different. He had a different vision about God, a different way of doing things. And, and God's new world, he was showing us what God's new world would look like. God's new world would look like grace. It would look like healing human bodies 
He would talk about forgiveness. He talked about assuring God's love. This is what it looked like. And even those closest to him, his disciples, they didn't quite get it until the very end. Even after those, those disciples in Emmaus says, yeah, we thought Jesus was going to do this, but he died. And then he says, yeah, but he was raised from the dead. And because of that, everything else changes. When he was raised from the dead, it was not just to say, oh, my power is bigger than your power. That's not what, the, what he was saying. He wasn't saying that my power is, is stronger than your bombs and your landmines and your missiles and your ships. He's not saying your, my power is over that. But we do want to think, well, we want to still want to do something a little bit more believable than that. And so then we go off into these and stress these other things because there's a little bit more believable than that. But Paul is saying this is it. The good news is that he has overcome evil with a power of God that doesn't look like anything we would know about human power. And that's incredibly important. He overcame evil, Paul says in Romans, because he took evil in himself. Every possible full evil and, and sin consumed every fiber of his body. And the physical, the moral, the spiritual violence that was done to him was taken in every single bit of fiber of Jesus' body. And on the cross, God condemned evil. Now, we have this idea that God punished Jesus. But if you look at, carefully at Romans chapter 8, it says God condemned the evil. Evil was judged it was condemned, and it was made impotent because it was judged on the cross. And then Jesus was raised from the dead with a different power. And everything changes. He becomes the king, and the world is different because of it. We think differently we behave differently. We have a different way of being human. So we have a new kind of king, and we have a new kind of hope. And that's when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that what we have in 15, chapter 15 is basically this, this, um, this summary of what the gospel is. By then, it's 20 years after the death of Christ, and by then, in the churches, it had become sort of this summary, this sort of a catechism in a way, or a ritual, or a lit liturgy, that this is what it was, that Jesus raised him from the dead in three days. The good news, the good news is not that, oh, Jesus survived. The good news is not that, um, that, that Jesus survived to, to fight another day, or that he escaped the cross unscathed. That's not the good news. Jesus did not survive. Jesus was not unscathed. He was very scathed. But God raised him from the dead over the power of evil. And sin was condemned. And this whole idea of resurrection was silly to a lot of people. 
There's a lot of things that uh, people had theories about life after death and what happens to life after death and do we die and all this. It, all, there, was, there were lots of theories about that. But resurrection was not one of them. That was silly. That was nonsense. Or if Paul comes to your town and says, hey, all these other gods that you're, worship, that you're worrying about, it's all a sham. It's not the real God. He found out real quickly when you do that, people take offense and they riot and they throw you in jail because they were so loyal to these gods. It's, it's kind of like, I mean, drawing a weak comparison today, but it's like our favorite football teams. I mean, I, we're really cheering for the uniform, aren't we? I mean, I can tell you just about every quarterback that the Cowboys that played for the Cowboys since 1963. But as long as they got that star on their helmet, I'm all for them. That's kind of how it is. When you're in that town, and that's the star in your helmet, you, you, you're loyal to it. And you take offense at anything that challenges that. But this is a new kind of hope. This is a new kind of hope. It's revolutionary. It's subversive. It's a scandal. But that, that idolatry is the glue that held the society together. And now Paul's come along and saying, things have changed. The world is different. And all that list of things that we read about in 1 Corinthians, this is what I think we ought to, we ought to learn how to do, and we read the New Testament, and that is read it backwards. In other words, when you take a book like Romans or 1 Corinthians or whatever, you kind of go to the end first, because that's where he's headed. And everything he usually he says up to that point has to do with that end. It's true in Romans, it's true in 1 Corinthians. He starts off talking about the cross in chapter 1 and how it's scandal and how it's uh, nonsense or, you know, but this is, the, this is the gospel. But then he's all headed toward 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection. And all those other things that he talked about, like the, the marriage and ce ce uh, celibacy and how to worship and the meals and the food and the, uh, the spiritual gifts, all those things he's saying we're headed toward the resurrection. He's saying he's trying to get them to think resurrectionally. I know that's not a word, but I'm going to invent it. Think resurrectionally. Because the way it's going to be in the future, you need to be living that right now. As if the future is now in the present. And you need to live like the place you're going to be. Amen. Think resurrectionally. That's what he's trying to get them to do. And it comes really important in 1 Corinthians 13, when we get to the nears, we're getting closer and closer to that resurrection chapter. In 1 Corinthians 13, that famous love chapter. And he describes love in probably some of the most beautiful words ever written about love. And he says, and we kind of think of it in our world as a command. You're, we're Christians, we're supposed to love. Okay, fine. But the way Paul describes it, I think in more instead of a duty, it's more of a life. It's more of a way of being, a way of thinking. And he says, think of it this way. He said, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I spoke as a child, I behaved as a child. But now I'm an adult, and I put those childish things away, and I act like an adult, hopefully. And he says, that's, that's kind of what this is. He says, in the end... I will know fully, and I will be fully known. In other words, that's love. That's what love is all about. 
And he says, that's the end. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. So I think he's saying more like, like love is a language. And if you know you're headed somewhere, you should learn the language before you get there. And I think what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 13 is that we are headed toward this place. We are headed toward the country we're going to inhabit. So you better learn the language now. And the language is love. And that's how the 13th chapter fits into the 15th chapter. Learn how you're going to be living in the future. This is it. Think resurrectly. You are Exodus people. You are resurrection people. That love is not a duty, it's a language that we have to learn to speak. And so point is that everything pivots around this. If we get the good news right, if we get the good news right and clear, then everything else will be clear. We get the good news right, the resurrection right, and everything, is, everything becomes clear. And we have hope not only in the, in the future, but we have hope of where we are. And we have a new way of looking at the world. The problem is that life after death is, is not the only thing about the good news. It is part of it. And like I said, in the, in the, new, in the ancient world, in the world of Corinth, resurrection wasn't even on the table. That was silly. But now Paul is saying, this is what happened. This is the event that changes everything. And he says, if not, then we are misrepresenting God. If this didn't happen, then you and I are telling lies about God. And Paul says, if this didn't happen, then what in the world am I doing? Why am I doing this if this didn't happen? It all pivots on this. And some will think it's silly. Some will be offended. But we know that this is where it all happens. This is where it all pivots. And we need to think resurrectionally. That God is doing a new thing. It is unexpected, totally by surprise. He is doing a new thing. And we have to change how we live. We need to make new decisions and live with new hope and live with new way of being a human being. This last week, I came across this heartbreaking story in the news about these two ladies, these two sisters, and one of them had a 14-year-old son. And they were told and they believed and, uh, and bought the fact that... Uh, we get, we'll get there in a minute. And they were told and they, they, um, that the whole society is terrible. Our world is awful. It's just getting worse. It's horrible. We can't stay here. And so they took the extreme position, the extreme decision to live off the grid. Now, I have to admit, there's a lot of things that are attractive about that. I have to admit that, that we're going to live off the grid. We're going to just be ourselves, and we're going to you know, just be there separated from everything. Well, they did that. They thought they were supposed to do that. They wanted to protect their son, or one of them's nephew, but this lady's son, from being contaminated by the world and, and getting influenced by all the stuff, the garbage that's going on, all this kind of thing. And so they get off the grid, and they found their remains this last week. They moved off the grid in Colorado into a wilderness area, 
but they didn't have the skills to do it. And I'm grieved for that, but I'm also angry at the people who taught them that. That is not biblical. That is not scriptural. Don't teach that. And they took it to its, to its logical conclusion. Well, we'll just completely separate, completely, totally. But Jesus promised us. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Why do we have peace? In the world you will have trouble and suffering, but take courage. I have conquered the world. I know it may not look like it. And I know it may not, it maybe it just seemed to be getting worse and worse. But what if we really believed that promise? What if we really, truly believed that? That I have conquered the world. Would that change the way we relate to one another? Would that change the way we, we hope? Does that change the way that we don't no longer live in despair, that everything is going to hell in the handbag? Would that change that if we really, really believe this? I, I really think it should. That we have this idea that contamination only flows in one direction. But what if it flows the other way too? What if forgiveness flows that way? What if 1 Corinthians 13 flows that way? What if assurance of God's love for us flows that way? What if the assurance that God will indeed take care of us after we die that, take, that flows that way. What if it all flowed that way and we contaminated them with the good news? It goes both ways. The good news is hope for the world. Not just my personal hope, but hope for the creation, the renewed creation. And the resurrection said the new creation has been launched. And we are a part of it. And we carry it on. And yes, we will be in a place in a new country. It took Octavia two years to get back to Rome. So I kind of see that as maybe that's the same thing. The event has happened. The victory was won. And we're waiting for our king to return on his throne completely. To bring everything to fulfillment. The good news, the good news has created a new situation. And it calls for new decisions. It calls for a new, new way of being human. And it calls for new hope. And I understand, I understand reading the news. I read it every day. I understand that, that it gets distressing. And it would be nice to live off the grid. But that's not what God called us to do. We are to contaminate with hope to the people around us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your promises. And even though sometimes I, I admit that I have a hard time believing them, but they are so real and they are so true. And uh, I don't really have an option to decide whether it fits me or not. It happened. And so, Father, I ask this morning that we all declare our loyalty and allegiance to the King 
to the king that conquered evil. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.